Amen. Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning, and uh, grateful that you're here uh, to worship with us. And uh, this morning, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and go to Colossians chapter 2 as we continue our series, Christ Sufficient, Christ Supreme, as we work through the book of Colossians, uh, this wonderful letter. And uh, let me just say how richly blessed I always am every week that we have the privilege to gather together. And uh, what, what a joy it is. Appreciate um, just the, the time of worship and Pastor Dan and the worship team and uh, just the way our hearts have been prepared to hear God's word this morning. And, uh, and, I, and I say, I've said this several times, but I just can't, I, I just want to continue to say it. How grateful I am and my family, as well as my family, to be a part of a church that loves the word of God and loves the gospel. And it is an absolute joy every week to gather here with you all and to serve together our great Savior who is worthy of all our praise. This morning, the message title is going to be Christ Plus Nothing. And I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read the Word of God together. And we're going to begin in verse 16, and um, we're going to read all the way through 23. And I'm going to be really ambitious this morning and try to get us all the way through verse 23. All right? So let's read. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. God, you are worthy of our praise and every thought, every word, and every deed, and yet we fall so drastically short. When we just read the Ten Commandments, we should be smitten by how far we have fallen, for we have not kept a single one of them. And yet, in your mercy and grace, though we deserve judgment and wrath, you sent Christ who came and lived the life we could not live and died the death we could not have died, and on the cross paid for our sins to cancel the debt and to bring us salvation and peace with you. Thank you that he has risen from the dead and that he is seated at your right hand. And that one day he'll return in power and glory. And so we praise you that though we are unworthy, undeserving sinners, that you have made a way for us to be saved through the one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit, that you would demonstrate the power of the Spirit through the Word, that you would remove every distraction, that you would cleanse my own heart, and that you would speak through, through me, and that you would give all of us hearts to be able to receive and understand the truth here, and that Christ would be exalted through your word. We love you, we praise you, and thank you for your faithfulness to us. Without which we would all perish. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And C.S. Lewis's classic, The Screwtape Letters, if you've ever read The Screwtape Letters, I encourage you to do so. But in the Screwtape Letters, Lewis masterfully provides fictional insight into correspondence between a senior demon in the spirit world, a senior demon named Screwtape, who is training his young apprentice named Wormwood. And he is training Wormwood in the strategies of deception to use against Christians or at least professing Christians. 
screw tape, that senior demon, tells Wormwood that the problem with Christians is that they have a mere Christianity. Or, in other words, the problem with Christians is that their faith is in Christ alone. He then shrewdly advises the younger demon on how to break this bond of Christ alone, or just Christ. He writes, and this is what he writes, what we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Work on their horror of the same old thing. And then what he does is, is he gives Wormwood some things that he could put in the and spot. Christianity and psychology. Christianity and good works or and religious rituals. In other words, the strategy is get them bored with Jesus and the gospel, but but don't replace Jesus altogether. Instead, convince them to add something to Jesus. And let that addition occupy their entire attention. And the reason I open up with that illustration from Screwtape Letters is because that truly is the greatest strategy of the devil throughout all the ages. Christianity and something else. Right? I mean, think of how many things in general that we could put into that and spot. Christianity and good works. Christianity and baptism. And then like a bunch of chickens just chasing feed that's being thrown everywhere, we've got Christians moving away from Christ and the gospel, and we're chasing every little thing that comes down the pike to pull us away from Christ and the gospel. Christianity and baptism. Christianity and the sacraments, Christianity and church attendance, Christianity and Bible study, Christianity and social justice, Christianity and self-improvement, Christianity and morality. And, and C.S. Lewis is right, right? I mean, Christianity and psychology. See how brilliant it is? Because the reality is, is that we stop thinking about Christianity or Christ, and then we start thinking about that other thing. That's how that works. So what is it for you? What is the and for you? Is Christ alone sufficient for you? We learned in verses 8 through 15 in chapter 2 that Christ is sufficient. For our complete salvation, forgiveness, and victory. We don't need another and. We just need Christ. And in fact, the book of Colossians compels us. The whole book itself, this whole letter, it compels us to ask two questions. Is Christ supreme to us? Is Christ sufficient for us? And again, all these ands are ideas, philosophies, religions, worldviews, experiences pleasures, addictions, they are coming along and they are offering Christianity and something else for fulfillment and favor with God apart from Christ and the gospel. And the reason that's important to understand is because it was no different in Paul's day. In Paul's day, the text identifies right here in verses 16 through 23, you can identify three central add-ons to the gospel that's coming against the church of Colossae. Three add-ons that are coming along and saying, uh, yeah, it's Jesus, but how about this? How about we add this? How about we, we put this in addition to Christ? And Paul is warning them against these specific threats. He identifies them, and as we see them today, we will understand that really the central truth that is in these verses is this. Don't add anything to your faith in Christ alone and the gospel. Don't add anything. Don't add anything to your faith in Christ alone and the gospel. 
You have all you need through your union with him. And so this morning we want to look at three admonitions that Paul basically gives. Don't add legalism, don't add mysticism, don't add asceticism. And so I want to unfold all three of those things as we see them in the text. And I want to do it in a way that identifies the add-on, but then tells us what it will do. So the first thing that Paul shows us here to demonstrate it's Christ plus nothing is don't let legalism discredit you. Verse 16. So Paul says, therefore, and that word therefore is the transition from verse 15 where Paul just said that Christ has canceled the debt. He has paid for our sins. He has disarmed the powers against us. Jesus has done it all. Therefore, if Jesus has paid it all, if Christ is victorious, then don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. See the connection between the two? Therefore is the hinge that opens the door into this next section. If you believe Christ is sufficient, if you believe the cross is sufficient, then don't let legalism discredit you. I want us to think about legalism for just a minute in the context of this passage. And then we'll, 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 we'll flesh it out a little bit. The first thing you see is the attitude of legalism. See it? Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Well, in essence, I think we need a definition. What is legalism? Well, legalism is the attempt to earn salvation and achieve righteousness apart from Christ and the gospel. That's what legalism is. It includes a long list of codes, rules, and rituals that a person not only seeks to obey, but requires of everyone else. It is the belief that our performance earns God's love and acceptance rather than Christ's performance for us. Now, I want to say this as an aside, right? Because whenever you use the word legalism, I mean, there's all sorts of misunderstandings of what we're referring to. And I want to make sure we understand we're, we're, we're not using the word legalism in reference to biblical standards or pursuing godliness or avoiding worldliness. We, we can't just cry legalism every time we hear the law of God. That's not what we're trying to do here. What we're trying to do here is demonstrate that legalism is an attempt to earn salvation. And when legalism takes root, it fuels very unhealthy attitudes. False teachers here in the church had been, had basically appointed themselves to judge the spirituality of others. And they were demanding Christians to follow laws and customs from the Mosaic law. That word past judgment, underline that. You know what that means? What it means is, is it mean, it's more than just being judgmental. These false teachers, they were trying to, they were trying to exclude others from God's favor. Past judgment is a very severe term. Like the Pharisees, the false teachers that were trying to creep into this church, they, they, they thought themselves to be spiritually superior to others, which was reflected in their intent to condemn people over trivial matters and not only condemn, condemn them, but to discredit them. Now, let's zoom out on that, from that. The legalistic spirit is harshly critical, arrogantly condescending, and hyper-judgmental. Further, true legalism, what true legalism seeks to do is to project an image of oneself that's not rooted in Christ. It's, it's an attitude that says, I have it all together, you don't. It's an attitude that says, I do all the right things, you don't. It is the attitude that says, I measure up, I meet the standard, and if you want to be where I am, you've got to meet the standard that I set. That's, that is a legalistic attitude. Legalism, it renders fear. I grew up exposed to this in many ways. And if we're all honest, we all can have a tendency to gravitate in this direction. Legalism renders fear. It thrives on fear. 
fear of failing, fear of admitting my own wretchedness, and then creating fear in others that they will be excluded, discredited if they don't measure up. That's exactly what you see the Pharisees constantly doing. Legalism is one of the great enemies of the gospel. And here, Paul identifies it as creeping into the church, trying to require people to follow the Mosaic law and ceremonies. And so we need to recognize the attitude of legalism. But we also need to see not just the attitude of legalism, but the agenda of legalism. See it? In questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. The, the false teachers here, what, what they were doing is, is they questioned the spirituality of the Colossian Christians based on two things, regulations of diet and recognition of days. Those two things. So diet, food and drink, questions of food and drink. These were regulations in the Old Testament that identified certain foods as clean and others as unclean for the purpose of purity. And some that some would say, some have speculated that the false teachers thought that if you would fast excessively, people would then receive divine revelations and ecstatic visions, connects to the next section. So regulate on diet. You have to eat these foods. You cannot eat these. Recognition of days. These would include feast days, important commemorations in the life of Israel. Sabbath, observed in Jewish life. The false teachers were requiring these to be observed. I've seen this over the years. Somebody will start reading the Old Testament. They'll start reading some of the ceremonial things. And then all of a sudden, they'll start wanting to introduce some of those things into the life of the church. It happens today. And so what Paul does here is, is he identifies this recognition of days uh, as involving these laws and directives that marked Israel. Now, Paul, here's what's interesting, and get this. Paul does not say, or he doesn't place any restriction on Jewish ceremonial holy days here. Remember in Corinthians where Paul, Paul basically warns us about, you know, we, we have to recognize the weaker brother. We need to be aware of, of those things. But, but actually here, Paul is silence, unlike in Corinthians. And his silence upholds their freedom. One author states, what Paul's saying here is, we can keep days and diets or you can forget about them. But what Paul rejects, he rejects the right of anyone to judge others by these things, and we are not to allow others to judge us over these types of things. Now, how many things could we put into that category that we end up getting hung up on as Christians that we think everybody should adhere to or should follow when in reality they exceed what the Scriptures actually teach? There's a whole list of things that we could throw out that says, in the end, it doesn't matter. What matters is Christ. And so the agenda of legalism is to introduce these kinds of things in order to put a burden upon the people of God. So what Paul does is, he says, okay, this is the attitude, this is the agenda, but then Paul gives you the answer for legalism. And here it is. He gives you a twofold answer to this delusion of legalism. Look at the text. He says, question th- these things to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Look at verse 17. These are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Paul gives us two things. First, the law is a shadow. Shadows are good, aren't they? But... They simply outline a greater reality. A shadow in and of itself is not important. Just ask the groundhog that appeared this year. Right? I mean, he got it all wrong. I mean, we're like, we're wearing shorts and putting suntan lotion on our faces when we go outside in the middle of February. Shadows are not important in the end. It is the reality that is important. All the festivals, here's what Paul wants them to get. All the feasts, all the festivals, all the rituals and the Sabbaths of Israel had one singular function. They pointed forward to Jesus. 
Hebrews 10 verse 1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. You're not made righteous by following Old Testament ceremonies or even man-made laws. All of that stuff in the Old Testament, in the ceremonial sense, was pointing to Christ's appearance. And that's why he says, the law is a shadow, but Christ is the substance. Christ is the substance of the shadow. He is the reality of those shadowy figures that were appearing on the walls of the Old Testament. Jesus is the reality of those shadows because He is the object of our faith and the reality of our salvation. That's why Paul tells the church in Galatians following the same thing. He says a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one is justified. So here's how we drill this down for us. Are you ready? No ritual, no rule, no law, no work adds anything to your salvation. And when we focus on any effort of ours apart from Christ's finished work, then we become Pharisees and we miss the all-sufficient Jesus and the glorious gospel altogether. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, from reading your Bible to attending church to baptism to prayer to quiet time to acts of service to preaching a sermon, none of it matters apart from Christ. Christ is the substance. He is the reality. And this sermon is nothing more than a, than a, than a symbol being clanged if, it, if Christ is not the substance of what we do. We have to see this. And therefore, because He is the reality, no legalistic standard can ever replace Him. So here's, here's where Paul's going with this, right? Don't add legalism let the gospel crush our legalistic tendencies and encourage our souls that no one can discredit our faith if it is in christ and think about this here's a question that i've been asking myself as i was thinking about paul's emphasis here don't let legalism discredit you do i obsess over rules Or do I overflow with grace? Do I obsess over rules? Or do I overflow with grace? I I mean, i got to admit, sometimes, uh, I mean, if you talk to my kids, they'd be like, the man's a a rule machine. Right? But but what i got to ask is, do I let the gospel overflow in my life with grace and love and compassion? patience so that all of us can find our hope in the reality of all that we do. It's all about Jesus. I used to sit my kids when they were little and sit around the table and I'd say, I want you to know that the reason we do this, the reason we read God's word, and the reason that we pray is not because we think it earns us anything or because there's some magic in it. We do it because Jesus Christ truly came from heaven and died for wretched sinners like us and he is raised from the dead and we want to know more of him. God, help me that nothing becomes in my life some kind of legalism, but it's all an overflow of the grace that's come to us through the gospel of his son. So, Don't let legalism discredit you. But there's a second thing. And the second thing is, don't let mysticism defraud you. Look at verse 18. And you can see how Paul breaks this up. Because he just said, "Let, let let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to festival and so on. But then in verse, in verse, uh, verse 18, look what he says. He says, 
let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions. Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And that pronoun his indicates that there are false teachers that are coming in trying to get to these Christians. So mysticism. That's the next thing that he brings up. And so the first thing we need to recognize there then, just like we did with legalism, notice the threat of mysticism. Have you ever been thrown out of a game by a referee or umpire? You don't have to admit that. I have, but I'll tell you about that a different time. Just once, by the way. I just want to make sure I I don't want to project a horrible image of myself. Anyway, um, sorry, legalism there. All right, so here's what's happening. These false teachers were acting as umpires or referees to disqualify these precious believers. Other translations will read this way. Let no one defraud you from the prize. And that prize that Paul's talking about, let no one defraud you. No, let no one deceive you or to, or to disqualify you, throw you out from the prize. And the prize is the fullness, completeness, and assurance of salvation that's ours in Christ. Don't let anyone defraud you of what you have in Jesus by adding mysticism to your faith. Now, John MacArthur helpfully defines mysticism as the pursuit of a deeper or higher subjective religious experience. A subjective experience. In other words, it's the idea that we can have knowledge and spirituality apart from Christ and the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying that, that our emotions don't matter. I'm an emotional person. Right? Some of us, our feelings are, we, we feel deeply, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what is wrong is when we let our feelings or emotions begin to dominate what is the truth. And so what, what Paul says here is, is he, he, he's warning us of a danger that, that we might tie to Gnosticism. The idea that there's some secret knowledge, some hidden experience that's not available, that, that doesn't come to us through just faith in Christ. And revealed truth and divine reality become secondary to our experiences. You know how I know this is true? Because you know what one of the sacred rules of our day is? You can't question anybody's experience. You can't question anyone's feelings. But the Bible, of course, tells us where to test the spirits. And where to be discerning. And so... The, the threat of mysticism is real, coming along saying, stirring our emotions and saying, no, but there's something else that you need to have other than Christ in the gospel. And so verse 18 shows us the emphasis of mysticism. What is the emphasis of mysticism? Well, Paul gives three things, and I'll just give them to you quickly. First, they delight mysticism, those that were emphasizing mysticism, they delight in false humility or hyper-spirituality. Look at the text. Let no one disqualify you, kick you out, um, disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Or in other words, this insisting on asceticism, making these experiences that they offer making you think that it may, it will make you more spiritual, right? I mean, how can you question when somebody says, God said, or God spoke to me, or this or that, right? I mean, it, it just sounds spiritual. And so they delight, mysticism causes people to delight in false humility, to present spirituality based on experience. Number two, they claim visions and special revelation. I mean, look at the text. Asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions. I've talked to a few people like this, haven't you? I mean, what's going on here is there's a preoccupation with the spiritual realm, including some who even worshipped angels. Others claimed bizarre visions and dreams that they had received a special revelation that gave them insight that's not clearly revealed in the Word of God. So they delight in false humility. They claim visions and special revelation. And thirdly, they rely on subjective feelings and not biblically sound reason. And I want you to notice that Paul does not dismiss our reason. He frames reason with Scripture. 
Then look what he says. Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Sensuous mind, the experiential, the emotional. This is the, this is the attitude that sets aside reason and just we get into an emotional frenzy and that becomes our basis of spirituality. The mysticism here relies on subjective feelings and not biblically sound reason. And Paul says, I am concerned because I don't want this to disqualify you, qualify you from what you have in Christ. Now, how do we extract that to our own time? Well, let's just think about it for a minute. All this stuff appears in our modern experience in various forms. Do you know that right now there is a new book of, stu- of studies on near-death experiences? Fox News just did a whole thing on it. And there's like, I mean, there's now a, a new wave of just enthusiasm about near-death experience and what is in the afterlife. Some years back, people were swept away by a book called Heaven is for Real about a little boy who left his body during surgery and visited heaven. And he claimed to see Jesus. And Jesus apparently, he rides a rainbow horse. And then, we need to have a meeting after church. <laughs> rainbow horse. And he got to pet it. I read another book some years back where the author claimed that Jesus appeared to his son who went away to college. However, because his son was sad about being in a new place, away from home, Jesus appeared to him dressed as a pirate. <laughs> so he could so he could make him laugh, right? All the kids are laughing because they're like, yeah, that's like ridiculous, right? Listen, church, I, 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 I'm just being... Being truthful here, based on Scripture, I do not believe any of these things. People who visited heaven or hell or encountered angels with special announcements. I knew someone once that, uh, that told me that, that, that he had spent time in prayer at, the, at a church early in the morning and a 30-foot angel appeared to him and blew a trumpet. And my only question was, how on earth did you endure the blowing of a, thir- of a 15-foot trumpet? It's ridiculous. People who claim that they have had visions in their, in their grilled cheese and then even their quesadilla. Even in New Mexico, there's a shrine called the Church of the Holy Quesadilla. And if you've been there, don't admit it. I am suspicious when I hear people claim that these things. Or that when people claim that God spoke to them or gave them a word outside of Scripture. And the reason why is because it's it, it, this kind of mysticism diminishes the glory of Christ in the gospel and the sufficient clarity of the word of God for everything we need to know for spiritual fulfillment. You know, I mean, here's the thing. You know what happens when you hear these experiences? You're left wondering, well, what am I missing out on? Right? I mean, I sat down this morning and had... I, I mean, I... I I sat down this morning and had breakfast, and, and, and I didn't see Jesus in my toast. Or I, I, I went to Taco Bell, and I didn't, get a, I didn't get a quesadilla and have an angel appear in it. What am I missing out on? See, see what this does? And, we, and it's ridiculous. It's laughable, but it's tragic. It's tragic because what it does is it completely defrauds people of assurance of the sufficiency of Christ and the gospel. But listen, Paul here, not only does, does he give you the, the emphasis of mysticism, but if you look, I mean, he drills right down to the root of it. Look, look at verse 19. He says, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. These people are leaving the head, which is Christ, and they're going to all these other things thinking that that's going to give them nourishment, that that's going to give them growth, that that's going to give them fulfillment. But it's not, because remember what we said? It's Christ and nothing. So here, here's, the, here's what verse 19 is telling you. Mysticism disconnects spirituality 
and spiritual growth from Christ and his word. Isn't that what he says? Not holding fast to the head. The head of the body. That's Christ. If you're not holding fast to the head, if the head is disconnected from the body, all you have is a torso. And what Paul's saying here is, is it is the head. It is from the head that we receive nourishment and we're knit together through its joints and ligaments. That's how the body grows. And so, Paul uses this human body as an illustration to show that we grow only as we are connected to Christ and His Word through the Spirit. But when we disconnect from the head, we then make it all about us and our individual experience. So I'll give you one more. And I don't think that's a rabbit trail because it's conversations in my home and it's conversations that some of us are having. Well, what about the question about revival? So let me just enter into the discussion about revival since we're, we're reading here in Colossians. First, I, I want to be clear that we should pray for spiritual revival. And we should pray for spiritual awakening that comes through the sound preaching of Christ. It ought to be our desire for the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sins. To bring eternity so near to us that our affections are stirred for Christ. But when that happens, do you know what will happen? The gospel will become as wonderful as it truly is. The gospel will become 3D. Like, I mean, the gospel will, will become high definition. And then what will happen is sinners will be converted. And, and then we will overflow with a zeal to spread the gospel. Man, we, we should pray for that to happen every single week we're together as a church. So I want to be clear. We pray for revival and we pray for the Holy Spirit to work. But, but here's the caution and this is the conversation that I'm having a lot. Right? And this caution is not specifically speaking to any specific thing necessarily. Because I'm only here with you in Chillicothe, Ohio. But what I will say is, is that we live in an age where people obsess over the extraordinary. We're always seeking the next big thing, the next great event, the next amazing experience, the next trendy fad. Our tendency is to want something else, something more than the simple gospel and the ordinary means of grace by which we live our Christian lives. And so when I hear people talking, saying this to me, or even, as happened, has talked to my kids about outpourings of the Spirit, encountering Jesus, movement of God, I need to exercise biblical discernment. So I'm going to give you some questions that you should ask. You ready? First, what are we talking about? That's the question. Like when somebody uses a word, I want to know what we mean. So if we say outpouring of the Spirit, we need to define that very clearly and very biblically. And here's another question that we should grid over anything that we see in the larger culture. Is this making the gospel clear or less clear through preaching? That's huge. Is the, or, or is it leading to, uh, to a, a sense of a lack of clarity? We need to be asking that question. And here's another question. Does what's going on, does it move us toward Christ and the word? Away from our subjective experiences? Or does it move us to our experiences in away from Christ and His Word? We need to ask those kinds of questions. So my summary of thought is this. I can pray for what's going on in other places like Asbury and other parts of the world. But the truth is, I don't need to be compelled to go there or anywhere else to get something that I already have right here. And what I have right here is the Word of God, the Gospel of Christ, the Spirit indwelling in me and in every single one of you in this church who embraces Christ. And, and here's, here's what's amazing. Every Sunday when we're together, we encounter the risen Christ in the living Word and the Spirit is at work in our lives. Do we want to see more of that? Absolutely. Should we pray for that? Yes, we should. 
But don't you for a second wonder, am I missing something? Because you're not. Because Christ is all in all. And that is the truth that we need to hold to. So that is just a side note, and sometimes we have to use that, that side note because what Paul's warning us here is don't add a bunch of other experiences to what you have in Christ, right? Christ alone is the source for spiritual growth as the Spirit indwells every believer. So we might ask, are we seeking mystic encounters? Are we seeking sensational experiences? Or are we realizing everything we have in Christ? Don't let anyone disqualify you. Don't let anyone defraud you of what you have in Jesus, making you think, you know, well, I mean, what I really need is Christianity and speaking in tongues, right? And I need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and again, if I could just say this, isn't it interesting that the Spirit and all that, that, that we might emphasize in that regard, you can't disconnect the Holy Spirit from Christ because he has been given to exalt Jesus, He came to speak of Christ and not himself. And that's why we said in the very outgo here that we need to be careful that we're not drawn away to think we need something more than what we already have. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, what you need is you need salvation through Jesus. And when you are saved and you believe that Christ died for you and was raised from the dead and you repent of your sins, guess what? The Bible promises that you will be given the Holy Spirit because he will indwell you. And so you don't need anything more than Christ as he's offered in the gospel. And for us as believers, let's not seek anything more than what we already have in him. But that leads me to a third thing, the last thing. Don't let legalism discredit you. Don't let mysticism disqualify you. But lastly, don't let asceticism dominate you. Verse 20. So Paul says, If with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so here, Paul moves to a third thing that people were adding, or that the false teachers were saying they should add to their faith, asceticism. Now, Just as we did the last two, let's move quickly. What are the requirements of asceticism? Look at verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. See what all that relates to? The flesh, the body. And so asceticism was driven by Gnosticism, which viewed the physical world as evil, including the body and its natural desires. So the thought was, the more we discipline and deny the flesh then the deeper connections we'll have with God. And when you take that thinking and you mix it with Christianity, you have false teachers who believe that by modifying behavior severely or even punishing the body or denying the body physical desire or fleshly desire, that, that would, that's what would make you truly spiritual. So Robert Godfrey says the three principles of asceticism are poverty, chastity or abstinence and obedience and and so what was being taught was was the false teachers were saying that you should take a vow of poverty renounce your wealth you should abstain from food and drink as well as even sexual relations within marriage and then as you abstain from that as you take a vow of poverty then what you should do is devote yourself to spiritual discipline and to God. In essence, only things like prayer, study, fasting, serving God, that's all that matters. Do you see the divide? In other words, everything earthly is wrong, only what is spiritual is right. But but what's going on here will eventually fuel 
other things that will come along in church history like the monastic movements, right? If we just separate ourselves from the whole world, deny our flesh of any natural desire, then we'll be holy. But that is not the gospel. And, And Paul even identifies the problem with this thinking in verse 22 and 23. What's the problem with asceticism? Well, first, it deals with things that are insignificant. Food, drink, other pleasures. Those things are part of the created world. They're good, but they're not ultimate. And even Jesus, in Matthew 7, verse 19, he says, you can eat anything. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8, food does not commend you to God, Paul says. Instead of abstaining and and refusing natural pleasure that God has created, we should enjoy them, embrace them, and use these things to glorify God. Isn't that why Paul said, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God? So, so, so what Paul does here is, is he's, he's, he's kind of zooming in on the problem. It's insignificant, and it's illusory. It's an illusion. He, look what he says. It has the appearance of wisdom. Wow, this guy is spiritual. Right, he puts on robes and he goes out in the wilderness and he, he eats insects for, you know, for days on end and, and drinks water only and, and he just, spe- he, what Paul says is like, he's saying that this has an, this has the illusion of spirituality, but it's not. Furthermore, it's idolatrous. It promotes self-made religion, self-reliance. It's like Henry David Thoreau. Self-discipline apart from Christ. And at the end, look what he says. It's ineffective. He says these have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism. I'm going to starve myself into spirituality. And if you read 1 Timothy 4, 3, you know what Paul says? It's the doctrine of demons. It's the doctrine of demons to suggest that we can curb or cut off the desires of the flesh by just starving the body. Instead, what we should do is we should flee to Christ. So the way this often appears in religious circles, and uh, there's a, a book that I've been reading that is dealing with some of the, I, I say, really extreme religious conservatism, not conservatism, fundamentalism, separatist kind of stuff. And Ginger Velo, she is, uh, she's, she's, um, she's Ginger Duggar, the Duggars, one of the Duggars. She wrote a book, and it's, it's an excellent book dealing with a lot of these excessive standards that often have been adopted and implemented into people's lives as if it's going to control sin. And she says, you know, she says, as I grew up, I realized I can't obey enough man-made rules to be truly free from the weight of my imperfections. No matter how many restrictions I place on my behavior, my wardrobe, my time, or my appetites, I'll never get away from my sinful self. I need someone else to rescue me. And she discovers the truth of the gospel. And so the point here is, is that that leads us to the remedy of asceticism. So the problem is it's based on human reliance and humanism. The problem is it's an illusion. It sounds spiritual, but it's really not. But here's the remedy. Look at the remedy. It's in verse 20. Paul says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you're still alive in the world? Do you submit to regulations? In other words, the remedy is union with Christ. It's in Christ that we have died to sin. And we have been raised to new life. Do you want to know how we kill sinful desire? Not by cutting off everything physical, but by being transformed by the power of the Spirit so that the things we do glorify God and accomplish His purpose. And therefore, in Christ, we find the true remedy to self-denial and self-discipline is to submit ourselves not to a laundry list of rules, but to submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus and being controlled by the Spirit. One commentator says, only the gospel and our union with Christ. One commentator says, there is only one thing that will put the collar on the neck of the animal within us. It is the power of the indwelling Christ. And so this morning, how do we apply this truth? 
Only the gospel and our union with Christ can transform us and subdue sin. Not external self-made disciplines and denials. So for you and for me, don't add asceticism to your faith. Should we flee sin? We'll be talking about that in a couple of weeks. How do we mortify sin? But we don't want to separate that from what we have in Christ. You have the power now to kill sin. And it's through your union with the risen Lord. And so don't wage warfare against sin through your flesh. Wage warfare through the power of the Spirit. So in conclusion, we've covered a lot. I appreciate your patience and graciousness to listen. Here's the conclusion. Do not add anything to your faith in Christ alone and the gospel. What is moving you away from Christ and his finished work? I want you to seriously think about that. Is it legalism? Is it mysticism? Is it asceticism? I mean, if it's legalism, you need to rest in grace. If it's mysticism, you need to receive gospel wisdom and discernment. If it's asceticism, you need to recognize your union with Christ and live in the power of the Spirit. What's moving you away from Christ? What is coming into the equation of Christ plus? It has to be Christ plus nothing. And then is Christ and the gospel everything to you? Are you resting and trusting in Christ alone? That's what we need to ask ourselves this morning. And then as we do, we can sing, Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. And my weary load was borne by him. And he alone can give me rest. Because it's Christ, not legalism, not asceticism, not mysticism. It's Christ alone and nothing else. What's your faith in? Let's stand. And as we stand, let's ask the Holy Spirit to work in our own hearts. To have assurance, to realize all we have for fulfillment and salvation is in Christ. And to ask him to work and to stir in us a greater love for Jesus. And to not add anything to what we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. The grace of those that are here this morning to listen. And may you now work in our hearts. Apply your word to our lives. Help us to look at the things that are, are tempting us to, that, to add to our faith. And help us to let nothing pass judgment on us, to disqualify us, or to dominate us, except Christ and the gospel. Give us wisdom. Give us strength. And stir in our hearts the response that would honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.